Joshua. Thank you so much, Matt. Good morning, SBC. I hope you're all doing really well. And a massive thank you to the worship team, not only for worship this morning, but worship on Wednesday night. If you weren't there, it was really sweet uh, to exercise the, the fruit of uh, self-discipline. <laughs> because as I got to about the third or fourth song on Wednesday night, I realized my voice was actually starting to go. And I really wanted to actually have a voice to preach this morning. And so uh, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much. Uh, from what I believe, we are going to be doing that more in the future. So don't miss those. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been going through a series to, uh, through the, the letter to the Philippian church. And Matt kicked us off with about five or six weeks through the first two verses. He's gifted that way. And from there, we saw that Mark Wood went through verse three to six last week. We saw that what Mark went through was very much dealing with heart issues, heart issues of prayer, how we are to pray and to make sure that when we pray to God, we aren't just merely complaining to God about the things that we're upset about. We're actually stretching into enjoying God and enjoying relationship with God and being thankful for all that He's done for us. And finally, he went and he landed on that beautiful verse 6 where he says that he has absolute assurance that the one who starts this work, God in heaven, will be the one who fulfills the work. He sustains it, and he will make sure that if your faith is in Christ, his arms are gripped around your heart. You will be safe, and you will see Jesus face to face one day. And so that was very much heart that was preached last week. And what we're going to find is that as this letter to the Philippians unfolds, it moves not only from heart, but heart into action. And so I've titled today's sermon, Christ Counters culture. You will know that there is nothing new under the sun, as we're told in Ecclesiastes. And so the things that this Philippian church are struggling with, you'll find that we still struggle with in our day and age today. And so I'll be preaching from verse 7 to 11, and there are going to be three main points that come out of it. It's quite immediately obvious how these three also dissected. The first one comes from verse 7, and that is where Paul is going to go and focus on partnership and unity. And in a, in a world like ours today, out there in secular society, it is completely segregated. We would think that with social media, we'd be able to connect a lot more to everybody. But the reality is that when each person has their own platform, they all think that they're leaders. We all think that our voice should be heard and is important. And the result is that there are many leaders and nobody really following. There's not unity. Everybody goes off in their own direction. We separate ourselves in many different ways. We separate ourselves based on our income. We separate ourselves based on skin color. Separate ourselves based on prestige or power, where we live, security, comfort, the haves and the have-nots. There are many different ways in which we separate ourselves from the people around us. And what Christ brings through for us in this letter is not segregation, but unity that is centered around the goodness of God. It is a message that our culture and our society drastically needs to hear and believe. The second point that I'll be going through has to do with the genuine love that comes from the top down to us. And that's going to be found in verse 8 and 9. God is love. And if you want to go out and effectively love people, if you want your heart to actually shift gears and go into action, you are going to need to first taste and receive this love from God before you are able to go out and love the people in this world. And again, the people in this age needed to hear this message in this, this city of Philippi. It would be family against family trying to build up your family's kingdom and squash out all the lesser families around you. 
And God says, no, there's a more important family here. It's my spiritual family. It is a kingdom that truly will be lasting forever. Charles Spurgeon, who was alive in the 1800s, clearly saw that the people in his day and age struggled with the same thing. And so he has this to say about this love and discernment. He says, yes, people are very good at love and discernment. They love themselves so much that they will avoid anything which pulls them out of their comfort zones. And the moment they discern that they will need to give up anything, they avoid it like the bubonic plague. We are still very much like that, I'm afraid. We need the radical love of Christ to penetrate our hearts, to change our selfish ways, so that we would actually grasp this genuine love that comes from God and use it to love the people around us. And finally, Paul gets into verse 10 and 11, which is very much eternal perspective. A wise man once said that fools live for the weekend, and those who are wise consider the generations to come. And I will tap onto that and say, and the wisest of all consider eternity to come. Paul is zealous for you to run this race well, so that when you cross that finish line, you hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we are going to dig into this and see exactly what Paul is motivating us to do. So here we go into our text. Philippians chapter 1, verse 7 to 11. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let us pray. Lord, we find ourselves today in a culture and a society that so easily drifts away from you that seems to fall into the same bear traps time and time again. But Lord, your eternal word answers the questions that we have this morning. And so Lord, I pray that you would open up your scripture to us, lay our feet in a broad place this morning so we might value what you value and so that we might prize this unity in the church and have a genuine love that flows from you to us and then through us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. My first point for this morning is proven partnership in the goodness of God. And I'll be focusing on verse 7. Paul starts off saying that it is right for him to feel this way about this Philippian church. And what he's referring to is the verse just above that, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He goes and he says that he is sure that the God who has started this work in these Philippians will bring it through to completion. He's saying that when somebody puts their faith and their trust in Jesus... If that's genuine, it is sorted, my friends. There is eternal, uh, there's eternal security here. Nobody's going to come to Christ and be cast out, and they're not going to come to Christ and have him embrace them, and then afterwards fall away. And it leaves Paul in a place of freedom. He knows that he cannot keep other people saved. It is not his job. It is a job of somebody far more qualified, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit himself. And so he says, I know what happens when you come to Christ, you put your faith in him. There sits the Holy Spirit on that heart. 
he starts a fire and he puts log after log onto that fire and he will sustain it and bring it through to completion. But he doesn't stop it there. Paul then from that initial thought in verse 6 shifts over to celebrating. The reason why he's celebrating in verse 7 is because the missions team for the, the Great Commission has grown. He looks at this, this church that is a fledgling church in Philippians, who is, who, in Philippi that has grown massively, and he says that this is now, it is, it is evidence of God's message going out powerfully. The gospel, the gospel commission is going out, it is growing, and Philippi is this powerful lampstand in the ancient world. And so he moves on in verse 7, he says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. That is profound. That it is about every member in this church. That the Holy Spirit has so shaped and molded these Philippians that Paul is able to say with confidence that God is at work in all of them. It is freeing for him. Because where he finds himself currently is chained in a prison cell. And what happens to the gospel? Does it stop? Is everybody now stressing because Paul's in a prison cell? No. He says that the gospel will spread. The kingdom will advance. And little by little, it will get to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. It is a large view of the gospel that Paul paints for us. He says that the Holy Spirit will be the one that draws people's eyes to Christ. As you gaze upon him, you will have your heart permanently changed. And it will be evident to everybody that is around you. And this should excite you. Because for those of you who might come to church and you, you view church as just this thing that we check off. We'll just attend it once a week and then after that it's done. This smashes that idea. That church is so much more than that. It is this missions base from which you'll be sent out to the ends of the world. The church is the bride of Christ as we heard this morning. Church is family, and so when you are feeling like you're falling apart, your Christian brothers and sisters will come and pray for you. Church is so much more, and this is why we see that unity in the church is so important, and it's what Paul is busy celebrating. And if you leave out the defense and the confirmation of this gospel that Paul is speaking about, you also leave out the incredible grace that God will supply you in your time of need. The more you go through, the more grace God will give you, and the more you'll be able to glorify Jesus for the ways that he has come through for you. If I could paint it out in this picture, it's, it's almost as though we said to you here at SBC, we are going to have a massive feast for a week long, and there's going to be five-course meals three times a day. You can come, get stuffed, and then go home. It would be wonderful. And each day, there's this person who comes, and they, they see the meal laid out before them. And they see the starters coming and being served up, and it's, it's prawns on rye toast with a little bit of avo and maybe sesame seed, something delicious. And they go and they look at it, and then they say, okay, thank you very much. And they excuse themselves and they say, I just don't know if this is for me. Church, what is laid before you is this beautiful, massive mission that God has for you. And as long as you only view church in this small way, of just coming and hearing the word, but you leave unchanged and unchallenged, you are saying no thank you to the greatest meal that is laid before you. Eternal reward is at stake here. Paul wants us to run well. Christ wants us to run well. And so we want to make sure 
that we are saying, yes, Lord, how do I get stuck into this meal? How do I put my hand up and go full guns blazing for the glory of God? Returning to verse 7, Paul gives us a large view also because it crushes this idea that it is just the pastor's job to go off and evangelize. And that it is just this one person's job or that, that crazy guy who's got the gift of evangelism. It is not. It is every member ministry. And so the, the real picture that Paul paints is you can chain me up. You can take my physical body and you can put me in a physical jail cell. It does not stop the gospel from going forward. It is too big. It is too glorious. And it will reach out to the rest of this world. If you remember correctly, that one of the last times that Paul found himself in a prison cell, he knows full well that prisons do not stop the gospel because the Philippian jailer was one of the first few converts and congregants in this church. They chained him up. They were singing songs while they were contorted in, into funny angles while they were chained there. And God sends an earthquake and it results in the Philippian jailer and his whole family coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And now when he finds himself in a prison, it is not just him alone that has gone through Philippi, but rather there is a growing church getting bigger and bigger every day as this gospel goes out into the world around it. He celebrates for all that Christ is doing there. And he goes and he says, for you are all partakers with me. And he speaks about the gospel being confirmed. And that is a really exciting thing for Paul to consider. Is that the gospel is confirmed as they are going through hardship. And it seems a bit counterproductive, but what Paul is really looking at, I believe, here, is he's referring to the parable of the sower that our Lord told. And so what happens there is there are these, these four different soils, really, that affect things. And the first one is that as the seed is sown, it lands on some hard ground, and Satan comes and snatches that seed away, nothing happens. There's no growth, there's no plant that even comes up, and obviously no fruits. And so Paul's looking at this church, and he's going, it's not that one. The, the good seed has landed on the good soil, and there is something happening here. And then he goes and he says, well, there's that one that seems to spring up, but the moment there's, there's persecution, that, that plant just dies away because the, the heat of the sun burns it away, and that's from persecution from the world. And so as Paul looks at this Philippian church, he goes, there is persecution. What will they do? And praise the Lord, they are drawing closer and closer to Christ. And so all it leaves him with is two possible options now. The one is that they will be entangled in the things of this world, and they will run hard for all the money and the big houses and the fast cars and the, the riches that they can enjoy down here. Or two, the final one that he's hoping and praying for is that they will run well for Jesus because they understand that there's eternal reward. And even in the parable, there's this great fruitful harvest. And that is what Paul lands on in verse 10 and 11. He celebrates because this church is unified and they're working together and they realize that they can do so much more as they are working in unity. And this is why it is so beautiful for us to partner with Advance. When we need help, Advance helps us. We have somebody like Joey who feels stirred to go and, and be called to an Advance church down the road that doesn't have a pastor when we have four preachers here. We are able to help each other because we see that the gospel mission is so much bigger than just ourselves, so much bigger than us just making sure that we are saved and go to heaven for all of eternity. 
so much bigger even just than our beautiful church than we have here? Because God's church stretches across the whole earth and we get to play our part. My second point for this morning, point number two, is a genuine love from the top down. And for that, I'll be relying on verse eight and nine. It says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul starts off here by saying, for God is my witness. He's saying this is a, a genuine love. It is not something that is put on in front of people. He's not trying to convince you that he really cares about the church, that you do something for him. He knows that it's real, and we can know that it's real too. One, because this is the God of heaven and earth who searches people's souls. And he says, that God, that God sees into the very core of my being, and he knows that I have a genuine love for you. But two, it is also the fact that he's in prison. Why is he in prison? Because he was preaching the gospel. Why is he preaching the gospel? If it's threatened with prison, he goes, because he loves God and he loves people. And he sees his own life as something that is fleeting and people's eternity as something that is not fleeting. And so he says, I have no problem putting my life on the line to make sure that people would come to know Jesus. It is a genuine love not put on. And so we should be asking ourselves this morning, well, this is the sort of love that Paul has. How does it start? What is it initiated by and how does it grow? How do we develop this love? And again, we need to refer to verse 6 just above. He says, He who started the good work brings it to completion finally when we stand face to face with Jesus. But that gives us a hint that first and foremost, it is started by God. God the Father in heaven calls you. He places His Spirit within your heart. He regenerates your soul. And He pulls you powerfully towards Himself. And you might be going, well, well what do I do? What is my part to play in this? Your part to play in all of this is to make sure that you are loving him who loves you perfectly. Do not leave this place. Do not think that you are going to go out from church today and you are going to perfectly love husbands, wives, children, the weird family members, the homeless. You will not love those who are imperfect if you cannot first love him who is completely perfect. See, he loves you perfectly. You learn to love this God who's given up his only son for you. And all of a sudden, what you find is that out of the overflow of your heart, you will begin to love the people that are around you. It doesn't work the other way around. You don't leave trying to love those who are imperfect. You will end up bitter and hurt and bruised. You first need to have your heart filled up with this love of God. And so Jesus, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment, Lord? What are we to do? He says these words in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love first comes from God, initiated by God the Father. It is poured out into your heart through the Holy Spirit of God, and it is clearly seen in the Son, in Christ and what He would do for you. And so as you gaze upon the Son, crucified on that cross in your place, you'll see that it begins to do a work in your heart. This is what we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows His love for us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some people may have come into the building today and had this idea that they have to get everything right before God's going to love you. That's nonsense. God loves you. While you are still a sinner, while you are still a sinner, Christ has died for you on the cross. The only real question to consider now is will you come to him? Will you see that he has gotten rid of all of those sins, all the things that we have done, and it invites you and encourages you to draw near to him without fear of wrath, without fear of all these other things, because he has taken that cost on his own back. And Jesus encourages us as well to come to him, draw near those who are thirsty. You are to come to him. He says these words in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you thirst this morning? Some of you might have thirsty souls, and they can be characterized by a few questions that you might be asking yourself this morning. Where will I go one day when I die? What will I do for all of eternity? What is the purpose of my life? Why have I been placed here? If your heart thirsts, do not just be satisfied with an awakening or an idea that you now know that you're thirsty, but actually do what Jesus says here. He says, come to me. Let your soul drink deeply from Christ. The end result, this love that we're looking for, genuine, from the top down, flowing out to the world, is that as you take a few gentle sips from Jesus, you will find that the end result is rivers of living water flowing out from you to the people around you. Maybe they don't deserve it, but neither do we deserve this love of God. And that is what we are after. Paul then goes on afterwards to mention that it is his prayer that our love would abound. Prayer. Paul is a man of prayer. Prayer is this great spiritual thermostat to check how are we really doing with Jesus. Are we warm towards Christ? Do we find ourselves just naturally speaking to him in our spare time, even when nobody's around? And so Paul digs into prayer. He's already mentioned it a few times leading up to verse 9. It says in verse 3, I thank my God. Verse 4, in every prayer of mine. Verse 4 also, my prayer with joy. And finally, he gets into verse 9. It says, it is my prayer that your love may abound. We can pray that our love would abound. Starting off with loving God more, this great loving up for all that he's done for us. But it doesn't stay satisfied there. It then moves on and our love abounds to now start loving the people that God has placed in our spheres. We can pray, not just for ourselves though. We may be tempted to, but we can also pray for our friends and family members to love God. Those distant sons and daughters that you might think are far too far from God's reach are never out of his reach. Pray that they would love God. Pray that the church as a whole, as Paul does in this letter, would come together and abound in their love for God and his word. And Paul continues, what sort of a love is this that we're going to pray for? And again, we have to be so careful because of the context that we find ourselves in. In a society where love can be characterized in the soppy, emotional way where it's just going to carry somebody away, where it's actually just a mask of people being carried away by their own heart's desires. Paul is not after an easy come, easy go sort of love here. It is a rare tier of love. And don't hear what I'm not saying. 
If you truly love somebody genuinely in your heart, you will be moved in the very core of your being, just like Jesus was, to take action and do things. But if you are going to fall into this culture's idea of love, the moment things get tough, the moment they get a little bit difficult, you will remove yourself from that situation very carefully. We care far too much about ourselves. And so Paul goes and he says, what sort of a love is this going to be? A love that is growing and abounding with knowledge and all discernment. And he speaks about these these people who don't have this love that's grown according to knowledge and all discernment. In Romans chapter 10, verse 2, he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And so the moment that zeal disappears or that emotion in the moment disappears, so does the work that God has called you to do. And if I were to just put us all in the hot seat, you can test yourself here today. What would happen if I said, just go home, witness to every family member that you've got? On on Monday morning, walk into the office, tell them all about who Jesus is and share your testimony. Tell them all about what the Son of God has done for you. Some of you may well do that. I know that. (laughs) But some of you might go, oh, Bryce, I just don't feel like it was the right time. I just don't feel like they were ready to hear that sort of a message. And so as a result, I just didn't do it. The love that... Paul is after here for us is a love that he first sees in Christ. What would it look like if Christ did not have that genuine love? I don't feel like going to the cross. And so the moment things get tough, the moment there is suffering and your skin on the line, you just pull away, pull away. And yet Jesus doesn't. In fact, what you see is that his love is according to knowledge and discernment. And so as he considers the cross, this brutal cross set before him, through knowledge, he knows exactly what he has to do. He knows the will of the Father and he concurs with it, but he also discerns that this is going to cost him dearly. And yet what is it that motivates Jesus to go to the cross? Love. It is love. It is not a self-preservation sort of a love. It is a self sacrificing love. And so it is this love that Paul is after for us, that we would not get stuck with what the the world tells us, that we would not worry about this emotional sort of a love that just carries us along and we just do whatever we feel like, but rather that as we consider each one of us our crosses, we, we grow in this love with great abounding knowledge and all discernment so that we do not shy away from the things that God calls us to do. Genuine love from the top flowing down into us. And finally, Paul lands in verse 10 and 11. This is my third point, the resultant fruit of righteousness. What is the point of us having this this love that is growing according to both knowledge and discernment? It is so that you would have an eternal perspective, so that you would know exactly what to give yourself fully to. So verse 10 and 11 says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He tells us in verse 10 right at the end, he says, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul is not speaking about your salvation here. We know that we do not earn our salvation, and we find out from verse 6, we cannot keep and hold on to our salvation because Christ keeps us. 
he's not speaking about our salvation then. We can know that he's speaking about eternal reward here when we consider the very next verse, verse 11. He says, filled with the fruits of righteousness. He wants all of us to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Now this, if we just read between the lines here, shows us that there is a caution given here to you as a Christian. That there is such a way to live where your love for God is not abounding. Your love is not growing. And we are not looking to grow in this love for people, for, for God's mission that he's laid before us. Instead, we get, uh, we get distracted by the things of this world. Paul does not want that from us. He wants us to run well. And so at the end of the day, the only thing really that is, is properly damaged in the situation, if we don't take seriously this need to discern well what we give ourselves to, what is damaged is our eternal reward. We look at what Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and thieves and rust do not steal, kill, and destroy. Follow those things. Lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Paul tells this Philippian church, guys, eternal reward. It will last forever. And he tells the same thing to the Corinthian church. If it's mentioned multiple times, it's important for us to take note. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 to 15, it says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that, ha that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. We do not want to strive to be saved, but only as through fire. The reason why we are growing in this love that is rooted in knowledge and all discernment is so that we would be able to choose well what we devote ourselves to. So that as you build on this foundation who is Christ, you build with precious stones, with gold and silver, and those things that ultimately matter. Those things that you will be able to take through into eternity. And so Paul wants us to be zealous and to run well, maximize the time that we have down here on earth. As I wrap up this morning, I want to remind you of these three ways that Christ calls you to counter the culture and to remind you to keep such an open eye on what is going on because we have this tendency to drift towards things that are around us. The first one is unity and partnership. Unity and partnership has to do a lot with you being unified with your local church, really plugging into the heartbeats of church, not just attending, but going, where can I serve? If there is this meal laid before me, this feast, how do I get stuck into it? How do I go, Lord, I want to taste the grace that you have for me in those moments where I feel like I'm depleted and I have nothing? Put your hand up and serve. Find a place where you can serve in, in the church. Pray for the preachers. Pray for the staff. Pray for the churches in advance as they continue to plant. My second point was a genuine love from the top down. And if you don't yet know Jesus, remember that the invite is right here. What are you waiting for? He says, if you thirst, come to me and drink. There will be rivers of living water that flow out from you afterwards. And for the rest of us, as we also, maybe we find ourselves in a thirsty state, come to Christ. Drink from Christ. Afterwards, you will feel that there are rivers of living water flowing out, truly loving the people around you. And finally, eternal perspective. It is important, mentioned multiple times, 
And we need to make sure that we run this race well. Not just for the next 10, 15 years, not just to have a good retirement plan, but so that when we cross that line and we walk into heaven, we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, son, daughter. You did what I asked you to do. You counted the cost and you saw that my mission of the gospel and Christ was worth you giving up everything. Empty yourselves, church, for Christ to be magnified and glorified. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that your word is like a double-edged sword and it can pierce us right to the very core of our being. And I pray, Lord, that this message would dwell firmly in our hearts, but Lord, not just as something that intrigues us or interests us, but Lord, as something that really puts our hearts into gear so that we might run well this race that you have set before us. Lord, I pray for those who have come here this morning and who don't yet know you, who, who have heard about what you've done, but they haven't actually tasted and seen how wonderful it is to live in relationship with you. Lord, would you draw them powerfully to yourself? Lord, I pray for the rest of us as the body of Christ. Lord, would you fill us with your spirit to help us grow in this love that abounds according to knowledge and all discernment so that we might choose what to devote ourselves to with an eternal perspective in mind. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, it's been a pleasure to be with you this morning. I do believe that there is coffee and great fellowship waiting to be had. So you can go and enjoy that and we will see you next week.